0: Welcome to Lectio Continua, a podcast of Grace OPC in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I'm Pastor Brian DeYoung, your host and your preacher. We are going to be looking today in Episode 9 of Lectio Continua Acts at Peter's introduction to his great sermon on Pentecost. In this sermon, I do what a dear friend of mine would call some meta-thinking— Meta-thinking is thinking about thinking, and it's stepping back from the process of thinking and thinking about the process of thinking. So in this sermon, I'm going to be preaching about preaching and take a step back to look at how preaching works and how uh, God wants preaching to be done in his church. The sermon in Acts chapter 2 from the apostle Peter is a masterpiece, I think everyone recognizes that. And I think there's a lot that we can learn about preaching from how Peter does his work. But we don't wanna miss the fact that Peter is preaching the gospel and he is calling men to repentance and faith in Christ. And so as we uh, examine the sermon, we also want to catch the thrust or the gist of the sermon and make sure that we take to heart the things that Peter proclaimed, which have been recorded for us through the Holy Spirit and preserved down through the ages so that we may look at them today. Well, in this sermon, I'm gonna start with some thoughts on elements of sound preaching. And in that, I tie in some things from our Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 160. Then we're going to look at some introductory sub-points as we get into the sermon and wade in. And then for the final uh, point of my sermon, we look at the gospel foreshadowed, which is really dealing with Peter's quotation from Joel chapter 2. So I hope that this is encouraging and edifying to you as a listener. It certainly was a very encouraging uh, sermon for me to preach as a preacher. If you're a Christian like me, if you've been in church for most or all of your life, you have heard lots and lots and lots of sermons. Some of them have been profoundly good and very memorable. Some of them were not so great and have been long forgotten. And yet, preaching is a staple for Christian living and Christian growth. If we're not under the regular preaching and teaching of God's word, we simply are not going to grow very much as Christians. One of the comparisons or analogies that I like to use is food. We all eat food which nourishes our bodies. Some of that food is very memorable. It was so tasty that we remember it for a long time afterwards. Other of that food was just nourishment. It wasn't particularly schnazzy or uh, special, but it was filling and it was nourishing, and it gave us the strength for our day-to-day living. And as we need to eat on a very regular basis, three times a day, so we need to hear preaching if our souls are going to flourish and thrive. This is one reason why I become very concerned when people begin absenting themselves from worship services, where they just don't show up. and weeks go by, and we haven't seen so-and-so in worship. Well, it's like telling a man, you need to just stop eating, and let's see how you do with that. Let's see if you survive, if you go without food for maybe a week or a month or a year. No, of course, people will starve to death physically if they don't eat on a regular basis. And I think the same thing is true spiritually. If you're not eating the food of God's Word, that spiritual food for your soul, then you're going to be spiritually starving. You're not going to flourish. You're not going to have energy for the work that God has called you to do. You're not going to have power to resist the devil because you're going to be spiritually famished and emaciated. This is also a reason why people should be under good, sound, faithful preaching, Now, occasionally I travel around, oftentimes on family vacations, and when we're on vacation we go to a worship service in the area that we are visiting. And some of those vacation church experiences have been outstanding. I remember one year we were camping in Colorado and we went to a PCA church and it was just solid as a rock, very, very edifying and encouraging. But then there have been other times where I've been to churches where I think, well, there was nothing there. In fact, I go away feeling like I have just wasted my morning because they weren't preaching the word. They weren't giving me gospel truth. They were just talking, sometimes talking about very inane things. So good preaching is something to be savored and treasured and valued, and something that we need to apply ourselves to on a very regular basis. And that's part of the reason why I'm continuing to do this podcast, to try and encourage people with the sound and faithful preaching of God's Word so that they will grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is what motivates me each and every Lord's Day when I'm preaching here at Grace OPC. And it's also what's motivating the uh, task of sending this out through this podcast. So I do hope that you will be blessed and encouraged, Mm -hmm. that you'll be challenged, that you'll be built up, and that as a result of this sermon that you're about to hear, you will have new insights and new perspectives on why preaching is so important and why the Lord Jesus Christ is our great love. Well, Enjoy. Please turn in the Bible to the book of Joel. This is found in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, on page 911 in our Pew Bibles. Though I am sorely tempted to read the whole chapter, we will just read verses 28 through 32. But I would commend the whole chapter to you for your afternoon Bible readings. This is God's Word. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the, fe- the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now we turn to Acts chapter 2. We are picking up at verse 14 and reading through verse 21. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, "'Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose.' for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. "'And it shall be in the last days,' God says, "'that I will pour forth my Spirit on all mankind. "'And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, "'and your young men will see visions, "'and your old men shall dream dreams.'" "'Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, "'I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, "'and they shall prophesy. "'And I will grant wonders in the sky above "'and signs on the earth below, "'blood and fire and vapor of smoke. "'The sun will be turned into darkness "'and the moon into blood "'before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come.' And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, we thank you for these two men, Joel and Peter, whom you used in their respective days to proclaim your word to your people. And as that word now comes to us, we pray that your spirit would bless our understanding, that he would open the word to our minds and open our minds to receive the word. And we pray that you would do the miracle of the ministry through your word in our midst. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is preaching? That is a question that deserves careful attention, but rarely gets it. As hundreds of thousands of sermons are preached week by week throughout the world, how many Christians stop to consider what constitutes preaching? What is a sermon, and what should we say about the proclamation of that sermon? As we continue to observe the events of Pentecost, we witness Peter's great sermon to the assembled crowd in Jerusalem. Though it is perhaps tempting to just dive right into the content of Peter's address, we want to take a step back for a moment to think about this scene and to consider the question, what is preaching? So this morning I want to begin by first looking at elements of sound preaching. Then we're going to look at the introductory subpoints of Peter's message and then finally the gospel foreshadowed. So what is preaching? Well, from various aspects of verses 14 and 15, I would answer that question as follows. Preaching is the authoritative proclamation of God's word by God's ordained servant addressed to human hearers. The authoritative proclamation of God's word by God's ordained servant addressed to human hearers. It is the spirit-guided declaration of certain information to the hearts, the minds, and the wills of men and women. Sound preaching conveys true knowledge from God through the agency of ordained human preachers to the minds of the human audience. So we should really consider this more as a monologue than a dialogue. In other words, a sermon is not a conversation where the audience says things, the preacher says things, and they go back and forth like a conversation. Rather it's a monologue from the ordained preacher to the congregation. Now, this is not to suggest in any way that the congregation is disengaged or aloof or passive. There is a certain engagement which is demanded and expected from those who hear a sermon. And yet it remains more of a monologue than a true dialogue. Along this line, we can see that preaching respectfully calls for careful listening and close attention on the part of the hearers. Peter says here, Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Commentator Daryl Bach notes that the verb used there at the end of verse 14 is employed only here in the New Testament, and it means to pay close attention to something or to listen carefully. So the hearer may not put his mind into neutral and simply ignore what is being preached. Nor should the hearer allow himself to be distracted and pay attention to other things, rather than engaging thoughtfully in what the preacher is saying from the pulpit. I remember one time, this was many years ago, there was a groundhog out there. (laughs) And it was doing amazing things on our lawn. I mean, things that groundhogs have never done for centuries. I could tell, like half the congregation was just locked on what's going on with that groundhog out there. It's just so easy, isn't it? We start thinking about, oh, what what did I do last week, or what's on my calendar for next week, or oh, how could the Bucks lose that game? And you know, we get so easily distracted, and suddenly we've just completely lost the train of the sermon, and we have no idea what the preacher is saying. And as Peter calls them here, he's saying, lock it in, focus, give heed to these things, pay close and careful attention. So the faithful declaration by the ordained preacher must be met with the diligent engagement, the close attention, and the careful listening on the part of the hearer. Our Westminster Larger Catechism addresses this very point in question and answer 160. What is required of those that hear the word preached? The answer, it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Now that sets the bar pretty high. It says before you even come to church, you should be praying that God would bless the Word to your heart. And you need to make sure you're here Sunday by Sunday. Unless you're providentially hindered, unless your vehicle breaks down, unless you're horribly sick, unless you're traveling, you can be here. You should be here. Why? Because the Word is proclaimed here. And as you hear it your mind needs to be really, really engaged. Tracking on the flow. Understanding the progression of ideas. And trying to grapple with this. And even as you're grappling with it, you're doing a mental cross-check to say, is this really what the Bible says elsewhere? And as the Spirit brings things to your mind... You're having it confirmed that, yes, indeed, this is the true Word of God. And as you receive it in this way, and as you see the truth, your heart is warmed with love and faith. You are humble and meek in receiving it. You meditate upon it. You take it home with you. You confer of it. You hide it in your heart and then you live it out so that you're producing the fruit of it. See, that's what's expected of those who hear the word preached. It's not just sitting in the pew saying, how long is he gonna go? Hasn't he said that 18 times already? Boy, I hope we have some good cookies during snack time today. It's saying, this is my opportunity to hear the word proclaimed. I'm sitting under preaching, which is the chief means of grace so that I can grow in my faith. And I want to soak up everything I can get from it. Because frankly, I don't know if I'll ever be back in this place to hear the Word preached. I might die this week, or I might be incapacitated this week. So as long as I'm here, as long as I have opportunity, I am going to get every bit of goodness out of the preaching of God's Word. It's also the case that sound preaching has various related functions and it serves assorted purposes. We see from what Peter says there in verse 15 that sound preaching has an apologetical function. It's a defense of the faith. Some in the crowd had accused the apostles of being full of sweet wine. In other words, they're drunk. And Peter has to refute this false accusation even before he can get to the substance of what he wants to say. But preaching is also the exposition and application of the Word of God, the Scriptures. You see in your passage that Peter moves in verse 16 to the prophecy of Joel, which he quotes at length. And not only does he quote that passage, but he applies it very specifically to the unfolding events of Pentecost morning. This is what's going on here. Joel 2. And so it's the application of the Word of God. And then finally, sound preaching always revolves around the gospel and issues calls to repentance and faith. A sermon should not be an informational lecture about ancient people's remote events and curiosities from olden times. To preach means to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings preaching calls men and women to repent of their sins, to put their faith in the only Savior of sinners. Now sometimes this gospel is implicit, other times it is explicit, but it should never ever be absent. A sermon without the gospel is just a talk In fact, it's a talk that is virtually worthless because it's not pointing you to Christ. That's why so many of the sermons of these days are just really substandard. Ten things you can do to have a good vacation with your spouse. Ways that you can learn to get forward in business, and be more successful in your career. How to use your assets and resources to build more assets and more resources. There is an intensely practical approach to preaching, which at the first seems like, oh wow, this really applies. But conspicuously absent is Christ and the gospel. If I'm going to stand up in front of you and just tell you, you know, five ways you can be a better parent, and I don't preach Christ, I have failed utterly. No matter how practically helpful you might think that would be. You don't need just tips for better living. You need Christ. You need the truth of the gospel. You need grace. And so preaching has to always revolve around the gospel. So what is Peter saying here in the introduction to his sermon? What are his introductory sub-points? Well, the first thing he takes up is this cheap accusation of drunkenness. These men are not drunk, he says, as you suppose. Now, here is a clear and firm defense of the apostolic circle. Acting as the spokesman for the 11, Peter emphatically rejects this supposed explanation of their speaking in foreign languages. And he buttresses his word with some evidence. It is only the third hour of the day. Now, to understand this properly, you need to know something about Jewish timekeeping. They began the day at sunrise, around 6 a.m. So the third hour of the day, by Jewish calculations, would be 9 a.m., 9 in the morning. And since most of the Jews didn't eat until sometime around noon, they simply would not have had time or opportunity to overindulge in sweet wine. So, no, this charge of drunkenness is entirely false. In fact, it's a wicked slur. Peter is engaging here in apologetical argumentation. You might wonder, why even say this? Why bother to respond? Why not just ignore it as this kind of accusation probably deserved? Dr. Cornelius Van Til has written that whenever Christianity is attacked at any one point, the whole system is under assault. Thus, we must defend against any and all attacks upon the faith, even if they seem to us superficially insignificant. I think Peter realized here that the work of the Spirit was being explained away as a symptom of the human sin of drunkenness. And this is something very, very close, if not dead on, to the unforgivable sin. To ascribe the works of the Holy Spirit to the powers of evil was the unforgivable sin which the Jews were guilty of committing. And here they're saying, the work of the Spirit, oh, that's just the effect of drunkenness. And so Peter saw this as a very serious thing. It could not be allowed to go unanswered because the Spirit's integrity was being impugned and His truth was being criticized. But rather than understand these events in that wicked light, we must see what is truly going on here. And here's where Peter turns from apologetics to make a more positive presentation of the truths. And to make it plain to them Peter brings forward Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which we read. Peter connects the events of that morning of Pentecost to Joel's prophecy from hundreds of years previous. What Joel had predicted back then is now transpiring, Peter suggests. And specifically, that means that God is now pouring forth His Spirit on all mankind. According to Bach, the language that is used by Joel and Peter of pouring forth suggests a torrential downpour on parched earth. So this is not just a tiny trickle or a little droplet of water or mist in the air. This is an outpouring of the Spirit in extreme and abundant amounts. It's really reminiscent of that day when the great fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens were all opened in the time of Noah. A great deluge of the Holy Spirit had come upon the church at Pentecost. This outpouring of the Spirit comes broadly and widely. It comes upon all kinds of people. Your sons and your daughters, young men and old men, even upon male and female bond slaves. So this is a universal distribution touching every gender, every age and every class of people. Now, back in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit came occasionally on a few specific individuals. But now the Holy Spirit is coming indiscriminately connected with this. He is producing some powerful signs of his powerful presence, Your sons and your daughters are prophesying by the Spirit. Young men are seeing visions. Old men are dreaming dreams, again, by the Spirit. And even those oft-overlooked slaves, the very bottom of the social order, they would be prophesying by the Spirit. And these signs come upon the various people's to suggest the significant explosion of the Spirit's work in this world. This is a real turning point in terms of redemptive history. Up until now, the Spirit has been somewhat in the background. And now the Spirit is center stage. And He is taking over As my dear friend and mentor, Bebo Elkin, puts it, the Spirit is running wild in the church. He's everywhere. And he is doing a great work. Now up to verse 19 of our text, everything is relatively clear and fairly straightforward. But at verse 19... Joel's prophecy takes a turn. He moves from the obvious signs of prophecy, visions, dreams, into what is sometimes called cosmic signs. Blood, fire, vapors of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood. And all of this is previewing the great and glorious day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment. The intrigue of these last verses is really only heightened by verse 17, where God says, And it shall be in the last days. And those words, the last days, are always significant. So, Peter is very clearly claiming that those days, Pentecost, those were the last days. He says something very similar in 1 Peter 1, verse 20. And so, what does Peter mean here? The common interpretation is that this is a reference to the final judgment at the end of the world. And that certainly is possible. But there's a problem inherent in that interpretation. And the inherent problem with that interpretation is that Peter said this 2,000 years ago, and we're still here now, and none of this has happened. So what seems like a very urgent and timely warning of Christ's imminent return was really not fulfilled in the first century. So as the centuries go by, people understandably wonder if maybe someone just didn't get the memo about the end of the world. Why did it seem so very near then, but it still hasn't happened 2,000 years later? And similar questions are raised about passages in the Gospels, such as Matthew chapter 24, as well as the opening and closing chapters of the book of Revelation. And it has led some to suggest that the apostles got it wrong. That this was just an error of judgment. They wanted it They thought it was going to happen, and it just never happened. But, you know, if you say that about the apostles, you have to say that about Christ, too. Because Christ gives many of these warnings. And did Christ get it wrong, too? See, this is a real, real problem. Well, there is another way to look at the passage and other passages like it. The last days that are referred to here are not exclusively referring to the end of the world. That language is not exclusive to the end of history. The last days can also be the last days of the Old Covenant era. And that's just the common usage of... English language of any language. I, I'm sure that last night, in the fourth quarter, some of the Bucs fans were saying, it's the last days, <laughs> the last days of the Bucks season. We use that terminology not just exclusively to mean end of the world, last days of history, But there can be all sorts of last days, and the last days of the Old Covenant era is certainly one way Scripture uses it. Likewise, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is not exclusively a reference to the final judgment day. There are other days of the Lord in Scripture. And one judgment day that was looming on the near horizon for the first century church was the Jewish War from 66 AD to 70 AD, when the Romans came, encircled the city, besieged Jerusalem, and attacked it. And that culminated in the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction and burning of the temple, and the overthrow of the nation of Israel. And that would come just 40 years after Pentecost. It would come within a generation. So the Spirit's work was not only for the salvation of God's elect from both Jew and Gentile, but also it was to be a sign to the apostate Jews that their destruction was drawing nigh which, as we've seen on Sunday evenings, was part of the significance of speaking in tongues. The foreign languages were another sign that God's judgment was coming against apostate Israel. Now, this is nothing particularly new or novel. Very similar language, as well as very corollary ideas, are found in Luke 21, which is Luke's account of the Olivet discourse regarding the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. Now, lest you think I've gotten some ideas from some wild-eyed crazy heretic on the internet, John Calvin himself makes this connection in his commentary on Hosea or on um, Joel too. Calvin sees the connection. And Calvin's no wild-eyed heretic on the internet. So, as these signs of judgment are being discussed, it is not necessarily about the end of history. It is a message to first century Jews, your judgment is coming. It's gonna come within a generation because you have rejected the Savior, you have spurned the salvation that was provided, you are persecuting the church, you have turned away from all that is good and righteous, and now your judgment is at hand. But let me also be very quick to add this. The events of 70 AD we're not the ultimate and final day of the Lord. That final, ultimate day of judgment, which will come upon the whole world, is actually foreshadowed and symbolized by those events of 70 AD. In fact, good and faithful Bible scholars will always recognize whenever there's temporal judgments... It is a preview of the coming judgment at the end of time. So for instance, what happens in 586 when the Babylonians come and sack Jerusalem and take most of the inhabitants away to slavery in Babylon, and when they burn the temple, that's pointing ahead to the final judgment. You could say the very same thing about what happened in Noah's day. When God sent the cataclysm on the world, it was pointing ahead to the final judgment at the end of history. So every time there's a temporal judgment in history, it is pointing to the fact there is coming a great, horrible, final day of judgment. And so the fall of Israel in 70 AD really points ahead... ...to that judgment upon all mankind at the end of human history. So in light of the Spirit's work, and in view of these pending judgment days, what should men do? The answer is summarized in two words. These two words say it all. Repent and believe. The gospel is foreshadowed, and repentance and faith are called for by both Joel and Peter. The Spirit's at work, but judgment is coming. You better repent and believe, because that's the only way you're going to escape. That's the only way out of utter destruction. As I mentioned, Joel chapter 2 is a remarkable chapter of Scripture. Please take time to read it this afternoon if you have a moment. In the middle of that chapter, we find the following words. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So do you hear the call to repentance? Rend your heart and not your garment. Return to me, return with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and come to the Lord, and he will give a blessing. And as Peter picks up this prophecy and in verse twenty one of our passage, Joel says this, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here you see in the Old Testament the calls to repentance and faith. The gospel with that call to repent and believe. That was Joel's message to the people of his day. And now Peter carries forward Joel's message and presses it upon his own hearers. And so Peter's point is basically this. God is now pouring forth his spirit in abundance. These are the last days of that old covenant order. And a day of judgment is coming upon apostate Israel for her rejection of the Savior and of the salvation he has offered. It is now time for you to repent of your sins, to call upon the name of the Lord, and to be saved. Do it today. Later on in his message, Peter brings back this point. He says in verses 36 through 38, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit's at work, judgment's coming, you better repent and believe. And the message of Joel and the message of Peter comes down to our day too. A day of judgment is coming when Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Thrones will be set up and books will be opened and you will be examined. And on that day, your life will be laid bare for all to see. Even the secret thoughts of your heart will be an open book. And judgment will be rendered. If we're honest, if we're truthful, if we're reflective, we have to say, Wow, I'm in a lot of trouble. My goose is cooked, what can I do? How can I escape the wrath that is to come? The message of Joel and the message of Peter is my message to you today. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way to escape what you deserve. It's what I deserve, it's what we all deserve. And the only way to avoid that is to flee to Christ who is the Savior of sinners. Who lived his life and laid down his life and died on behalf of sinners as their substitute. If you believe that is true, if you would repent of your sins you will be saved. All of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your punishment that is due for your sins are taken away and absorbed by Christ, your substitute. And you have full and free forgiveness of sins. You have righteousness so that you can stand in God's sight. You have eternal joy and glory. But if you refuse the offer, there's no hope for you. Only the fearful expectation of the fires of hell and eternal torment, where the worm does not die and the fire never goes out. Because that's what Jesus said awaits those who refuse his salvation. It is a good faith, well-intended offer. It comes to you today from God, through me, according to his word. And so if you have never repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, I would urge and challenge you to do so today. Now, if you have, if you are trusting in Christ, praise the Lord. That's a good thing. But not everyone who sits in a worship service is necessarily a believer in Christ. Just because you can sit for an hour and 15 minutes in a sanctuary doesn't mean you have a new heart and a new spirit. And so the call comes to you today to repent and to believe that you may be saved. Now, these very truths that I've just been telling you are symbolized for us in these very sensible signs given to us in the Lord's Supper. The bread signifies his body laid down upon the cross. The wine signifies his blood shed for the remission of sins. And through these sensible signs and seals of the covenant of grace, we are brought face to face with the core of the gospel. Jesus died to save sinners. He didn't institute this.